It has often been remarked on in this series of conversations with John Anderson that we are living through a time of great change and tumult. As the world faces up to what is likely to be the most devastating global crisis in a generation, that observation is more true than ever. Like with so much we usually take for granted, our broadcast schedule has had to adjust to account for the new conditions we're living through. In the meantime, we have put together this highlight show, summarizing the series so far. It is now over two years since the former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia launched his video podcast series, Conversations with John Anderson. In that time, our videos have been viewed millions of times and we have gained consistently growing subscriber numbers via YouTube, podcast and the johnanderson.net.au website. If you haven't already, please subscribe. It costs nothing. The Conversations Project is a response to the poor quality of public debate and the lack of viewpoint diversity in much of the mainstream media. Identity politics and political correctness have stifled debate. Many views are not given a fair hearing. Careful reason and consideration of evidence is lacking. This is not good enough. And so through Facebook, Twitter, his website, and especially through this series of conversations on YouTube, John is seeking to engage with prominent thought leaders from Australia and around the world, even some who have been marginalised by the broader media for failing to toe the line. For the launch of Conversations in March 2018, John was fortunate to sit down with international media phenomenon and academic Dr Jordan Peterson in Sydney. This first episode in the series has now been viewed well over one million times. They say, I was in a very dark place. I was addicted. I was, I was drinking too much. I had a fragmented relationship with my fiance and I wasn't getting married. Uh, things weren't going very well with my family. My relationship with my father was damaged. I didn't have any aim. I was wasting my time. Some variant of that, some combination of those. And they said, well, <clears throat> I've been watching your lectures. I've decided to establish a purpose. I'm trying to tell the truth and things are way better. And I've, and so let's say I've done maybe eight or nine large scale public talks in the last two months. So that's probably 20,000 people and about half of them, a third to half of them have stayed afterwards to talk to me. So that's about 7,000 people who have said that to me. And then people stop me on the street all the time and tell me exactly that story, which is just wonderful. Like you can't imagine how good it is to be able to go to places you've never been and to have people stop you on the street spontaneously and say, look, my life is way better than it was. It's like, it's so good. And so, and I've got like, I don't know, 35,000 letters from people since last August. It's more than that. I can't keep track of them. And it's, it's exactly the same thing. Like three quarter, a quarter of them say, well, you've given me the words to say what I already knew was true. And thank you for that. I can see that in the audience. It's so interesting because I can lay out a story people go like this and say they're doing that all the time it's like the lights are going on and that's a really well there's almost nothing better than that to watch lights go on when you're talking to people it's like that's just absolutely fantastic but to get this response from people my father I have my father's about 80 80 he's 83 I think 81 he's 81 and uh, I put him in charge of of going through my viewer email um, which is an overwhelming job but 
know, he, we've had discussions about this constantly. He's overwhelmed by the fact that so many people are writing and saying the same thing. It's like, well, I'm, I have a purpose, man. My life actually matters. I finally realized that and I'm putting it into practice and I'm bearing up under the heaviest load I can imagine. And it's really helping. It's like, God, and that's tens of thousands of responses now. So it's, it's, you couldn't hope for anything better than that. There's zero harm in it, right? It's just people putting their lives together. They're not mucking about with other people. They're not trying to make broad scale social transformations about which they have no idea. They're trying to make their immediate environment better. And it's working. It's like, great. It's great. You say there's zero harm in it. I'd say as a former legislator that there's an enormous amount of good in it. Mm -hmm. A country is only the sum total of the people that make it Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. To the extent that they're put together, resilient, able to contribute don't have to ask others to help them, mm-hmm. the stronger the nation oh, and the society yes, will be. And, and rapidly. Like I, I mean, I think, I was thinking the other day, some, a journalist asked me why the audience, why people are responding so positively to what I'm saying, the young men, for example. And yeah. I thought, hmm, why, why? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's, well, I'm actually on their side. I'm really happy that, I'm really happy that they're not wasting their lives. I'm really sad to see that people are disenchanted and nihilistic and depressed and anxious and aimless and, and perverse and vengeful and, and all of those things. It's terrible. And then to see people question whether that's necessary and then to start to rise out of it. It's like, it's so fun. Like last night I was at, after my talk, it's overwhelming. I don't usually think about these things, but I was, I was after my talk last night, and so all these people line up, and you know, they have their 15, 15 seconds with me, and they're kind of tentative. They're excited and attentive when they come up to talk to me, and then they have you know, 15 seconds of time to tell me something. I'm really listening to them, and they're hesitant about whether or not to share the good news about their life. You know? And I think it's often because when people share good news about their life, people don't necessarily respond positively. You know, they don't get encouragement. And people need so little encouragement. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. And so mm. they'll tell me something good, and I'm mm. like, God, oh, that's so good. You know, somebody mm. says, oh, I'm getting along way better with my father. I haven't seen him for 10 years, and now we get along. It's like, God, mm. great. Yeah. And then the, the power of that, you can't overstate the power of that for individuals to get their life together. The individual is mm. an unbelievably powerful force, and every single person who gets their act together a little bit, has the capacity to spread that around them. Mm. It's, it's a chain reaction. And so it's a lovely thing to see. John Howard is Australia's second longest serving prime minister and arguably our greatest living statesman. John served under him as deputy prime minister for six years and they share a special rapport. Would you say you were a better leader for the fact that things went horribly wrong at times and you must have felt like there was never going to be the opportunity again to serve at high level? I have no doubt that uh, all of the setbacks I experienced uh, made me better equipped when I finally got there. Now that is said with all the benefit of hindsight and in Mm. the knowledge that I finally did get there and stayed in the role for a long time. I probably didn't feel so at the time, but there's no doubt that uh, adversity hardens people. There's no doubt that setbacks test whether people have resilience. I look at the great figures of history that I admire, 
men like Churchill. Uh, I often say of him, because he's such an exemplar of this, that the main thing in public life is to get the big things right. Political figures, or indeed anybody in a position of authority who takes over a big role and says, I'm never going to make a mistake, is doomed <laughs> to failure. We all make a lot of mistakes along the way. The important thing is to get the big things right. Churchill was an example of somebody who got uh, there and did the big things that really mattered, but along the way he made a lot of mistakes, taking Britain back onto the gold standard. A lot of criticism of his role. You know, we think of it as Australians in relation to the Dardanelles. The criticism of his support of Edward VIII in the abdication crisis. He was always opposed to India's independence, things like that. Yet, when you think of the most crucial moments in the 1930s when almost alone he was saying, we don't do something about the dictators, they'll uh, destroy us. And he was absolutely right on that. And of course, he has been regarded by history as one of the towering figures of the 20th century. Jonathan Haidt is one of the most important academics working today. Formerly an engaged supporter of the Democratic Party in the United States, his work into the moral foundations of our political views and his concern at the fracturing of political debate and especially the lack of balance in the university where progressive views and activism dominate has led to his work in developing tools to help us better understand and appreciate the political and religious opinions of people with whom we may disagree. What I discovered was the basic insight of John Stuart Mill, which is that you can't really know your own side of an argument until you know the other side. And all of us are so incomplete and so blinded by our team loyalties that we can't understand the truth unless we engage with people who challenge it. And so by the end of the book, I didn't become a conservative, but I basically stepped off the team. I just said, you know, there's, to, to understand what's going on, it, it blinds you if you're on a team. There are good ideas all over. Uh, and so I just became a sort of a nonpartisan moderate. John Stuart Mill's quote uh, to that effect is actually uh, very strong, isn't it? I mean, he more or less says, if you, can't under if you haven't understood the other perspective, no matter how passionately you hold your own, that's right. it's actually pretty useless. He who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. His reasons may be good and no one may have been able to disprove them. Here I'm beginning to paraphrase. Uh, but if he does not know what the other side's reasons are, um, uh, then he can have no confidence that he has gotten it right himself. And he even says, um, it's not enough that those ideas should be brought to you by your teacher who does not believe them himself. You must hear them from people who honestly hold them, uh, who believe in those ideas. And so this is one of the problems that we're, we're having. As, at least in America, as all of our institutions purify, and those the universities are, they lean left, there are very good reasons for that, that's always gonna be the case, but as they've gone ever more left and there aren't really conservatives available um, to act as teachers, students are not able to get a full understanding of politics and this damages our, our civic life. It prepares the students poorly to go into government service. Eric Metaxas on the abolition of slavery. The earliest abolitionists in the United States of America were all Bible-carrying, Bible-thumping evangelicals. There's no question about it. And so if you want to see where abolition started, 
it was always evangelicals. It's, it's absolutely undeniable. So when people say things like, oh, you know, Christians approved of slavery, people may have been technically Christians in that they weren't Muslims, they weren't atheists, uh, they weren't Jewish, so they say they're Christians. Well, what Wilberforce and his uh, ilk illustrated is that they're Christians and they're Christians. They're Christians who live out their faith, who see these things, these injustices, and abolish them, do what they can to abolish them, and work against these injustices. And then there are people who simply call themselves Christians and go to church. That has never uh, been any different. I mean, you can even say the same thing about the, the ancient uh, Israelites. You know, there are the people of God, and then there are the people of God. And, and just because you are technically Jewish, uh, just because technically you're part of the, uh, the nation of Israel doesn't make you Moses. You know, there, there, there were people that bought into these ideas that had a relationship with God, and then there were other people who were dragging their feet and even opposing things. So you have the Church of England, uh, and then you have, I would say, you know, establishment figures uh, in the church uh, in the United States who were strongly opposed to abolition. But the Bible thumpers, the serious Christians, whom we would call today evangelicals, they were the ones that, that pushed uh, for, for abolition. And then eventually it caught on with others. But let's not kid ourselves. That's the provenance of abolition, period, end of sentence. In this series, John seeks to engage with a wide range of different people with divergent views. He recognizes the importance of dialogue between people with different ideological outlooks. He sat down with his one-time political adversary, former leader of the Labour Party and current governor of Western Australia, Kim Beasley, and found both plenty of deep insight and much common ground. For Americans, the leitmotif is freedom. Yep. For Australians, the leitmotif is fairness. Yes. And, um, and freedom in the United States has, has many different aspects to it. In many ways, they're more family-oriented than we are. They're more attuned to moral debate than we are. Uh, they've got a lower divorce rate than we have. They've got greater religious participation rate. All these sorts a of things. A bit different to the Hollywood portrayal. Yeah, very different. To, uh, the US is not Hollywood, um, not by any shape or form, in any shape or form. But um, having said that, the interplay of that with the concept of freedom, which means that, uh, uh, and because... In their society, uh, the experience of the average American citizen is to struggle with anonymity. There are a lot of them. Mm. It is very hard to get a sort of ego-satisfying prominence in the United States. And, and you don't get there by being a shrinking violet. So while they've got all these counter um, elements to the, if you like, the uh, divisive character of, uh, of um, the sort of atomizing narcissism that you that you talk about uh, there still is that struggle against anonymity which helps to drive that atomizing narcissism here in australia we tend to value the collective much more we, we tend to think that um the uh, that all of us have the right to be risen as opposed to the right to rise there's more of a sense here that part of the job of government is to sustain levels of equity in the community. They don't have that concept in the United States, not at all. Jennifer Oriel on religious freedom. When we speak of religious freedom in the West, we're speaking about a particular rendering of the idea. 
It isn't the freedom to go about and haul someone for a, a Sharia court uh, or someone or stone someone to death because they're not respecting the particular rules of a doctrine. We're talking about Western freedom of religion that has been heavily influenced by the Judeo-Christian tradition. In the second century AD, Christians were accused of atheism because they wouldn't worship the gods of the state. And they wouldn't worship the gods of the state in part because they had a scriptural justification for not doing so. Christ said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Christianity provides the ultimate defense against totalitarianism. It has a scriptural defense of the limited state. Moreover, Christianity provides a scriptural basis for what we now know as the liberal democratic state, based on the ideas of universalism, uh, the inherent worth and dignity of the person, and the secular model of government that we've come to appreciate. All of those are based in Christian scripture. It's lost on most of society now because in Australia, as in many other parts of the West, we are becoming less and less religious. Christianity uh, is losing its popular appeal in part because people are no longer reading the word of God. I would encourage people to read it even if they're atheists. Encourage, Dawkin has said, read the King James Bible just for the beautiful language in it. Appreciate it as a cultural artifact, even if you don't have Richard any... Dawkins has said that. Yes, because of the superb language, because it provides a great lesson in the English language. Uh, and we're now getting to a point where there's such a cultural cringe about Christianity that people can't even appreciate it from an aesthetic perspective. They don't want to look at how the belief in the divine has inspired the greatest art and music and literature of Western civilization. So when we start to talk about doing away with Christianity and, and addressing the question of, would we be better off without it? Well, no, because it's the basis for liberal democracy. It's the basis of the secular state. It's the basis for universal morality that guides our law and our political systems. And it's the basis for that absolutely critical Western conception of individual human worth, that is, Imago Dei. The British journalist Peter Hitchens is a friend of the channel and has been good enough to talk at length with John on three separate occasions. His understanding of history and how it relates to current events is unsurpassed, and as such, he brings a singular and searing perspective. People are very distrustful of the system, politics, the institutions of our society, the church, and they're badly fractured as well. They're fragmenting into groups that seem very hostile to each other. How has it come to this? Well, it's come to this because ultimately things have an effect long after they've happened. When I was a small child, I lived near the great seaports of Portsmouth and Southampton and would go down to the beach and watch the great ocean liners, which still then went backwards and forwards across the Atlantic. And there was a game you could play. You could watch, say, the Queen Elizabeth, an enormous ship, pass by about two miles out. And you would then wait for the bow wave to come. Sometimes you'd wait so long you'd forgotten it was coming and then it would, you'd turn your back on it and it would whack you in the back so hard it would knock you over. There was a huge distance in time 
between the event and its effect. And I think we see now the effect of the collapse of particularly of European Christianity, which I think began in and, and, and then followed on from the First World War, where the churches made the grave mistake of supporting a war which turned out quite patently not to be a Christian act or to be the great war for civilization that it had been portrayed as being, and so associated themselves with wickedness on such a scale that they could never really recover their moral authority, and it began to drain away from them from that point. But of course, people continue to act. You don't suddenly get a, an audible click. And people suddenly stop uh, behaving in a Christian fashion because the churches are collapsing. The, the cultural Christianity, the general understanding of Christian rules, the general knowledge of the scriptures, the Sermon on the Mount, persisted in the population and still persists in people of a certain age, but has pretty much vanished. I was reading the other day that uh, thanks to various uh, films and, and, and children's fiction, many English children now know the Greek myths uh, far better than they know the Gospels. They simply are not taught the Gospels, for instance. They're not. They don't know the parables, uh, which have been a huge influence for us on my life. I know them. You can't expect this kind of cultural earthquake to happen and for it not to have an effect. The amazing thing is that it's taken so long. But the wave has finally struck the beach and people are seeing it. The two great consequences, the two great material consequences of Christianity for the societies in which it's been prevalent are trust, on which almost all uh, serious activities um, must be based, and the rule of law over power. Uh, how can anyone accept that law should be more should be more authoritative than temporal power, unless they believe that it has some sort of divine origin? And once that goes, it goes. So these things are departing from among us. While we continue to live in highly advanced, uh, physically and technically advanced as well civilizations, where those advances are ultimately based on trust in the rule of law, in the end. Uh, as they depart, those societies will cease to operate as they as they have done, and I think it is an ineluctable process which we're lucky only to be seeing the beginning of. Gavin Ashenden on the sexual revolution. First of all, we got feminism bringing in the new as as the vanguard of utopian equality, and it had some good effects and some bad effects. And then we have gay marriage, and this is very recent. Uh, we're not quite sure if we can judge the effects yet. So people like me are saying, actually, guys, this is, this is built on very thin ice and, and the outcomes we can see are not looking promising. Uh, and the rest of society says, cool it. Let's, let's, let's give people some slack and see what happens. And as we're doing that, the next, the next stage in cultural Marxism develops and it's transsexualism. So it's this, it's this fluid identity, it's gender identity. And this looks like freedom, but actually gender dysphoria also looks like mental illness. Uh, now, how do we tell the difference between freedom and mental illness? Well, um, William James was very good on this. He was a, one of the early professors of, of both psychology uh, and philosophy uh, in America. And he said, just look to the outcomes. The outcomes will tell you whether... Jesus said something similar, but let's stick with William James. William James said, let's look to the outcomes. Now, the outcomes are that the, the mental health of our children hasn't been very good in the last 30 or 40 years. It's really quite... A serious problem. It's been quite a serious everywhere in the West. Absolutely, uh, and whether it's 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 kids uh, smoking skunk, which um, which which causes real problems with 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 paranoia, or whether it's it's um, uh, the uncertainty of, of sexual freedom and responsibilities and the damage that go with it, 
and the ghastly abortion rate, uh, 7 million, 8 million in England, 60 million in America. Um, the cost of our new libertarian experiment have not been good. But suddenly, with the rise of transsexualism, we've moved from 1.07% of society experiencing a discomfort between the biology of the body and, and the, the, the psycho-gender geography of the brain to, 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 to an exponential increase. And actually, uh, the one thing you might give an adolescent to cling on to for some kind of mental stability is their gender, when everything else is up in, in, in the air. And now we've taken that, that stability away from them. And the, um, uh, the explosion of gender dysphoria is, is quite extraordinary. As if our kids didn't have enough mental confusion and, and trouble, this new uh, element in cultural Marxism is causing the most dreadful pain. And then you get a number of... But wouldn't, just, just to pull you up there, wouldn't there be those who would say, well, that was because it wasn't polite to talk about it before we suppressed it. We've now given people freedom to explore there's, their... Yeah, there's an element of truth in that. Um, of course there is. Um, there have always been a small, tiny proportion of people who suffered some kind of aberrational, either, uh, either biological, it's a tiny, tiny proportion, uh, or mental. Yes, we've, we've um, human beings, uh, uh, we, we come in, in the widest variations. But um, the more you bring into question our frailties, our, our, uh, our, our oddnesses, our eccentricities, particularly if you're right at the end of the scale, the greater uncertainty there is. And people don't manage very well with uncertainty. But if you compare the two, two things side by side, as you quite rightly do, then, um, then the number of people who, uh, who function perfectly adequately, even if they were at that end of the spectrum, uh, compared to now, uh, is enormously different. Now, now you, people are given the freedom to explore. They're given the freedom to be told they may what they seem and their functionality is, is really very badly flawed. Neil Ferguson, another friend of the channel, is arguably the world's foremost economic historian, although his expertise ranges far wider than that. Before a live audience in Parliament House in Sydney, he spoke with John on a host of different issues, from the rise of China to Trump's America, economic regulation, Brexit, and much more. When one assesses China's defense spending, maybe defense is the wrong word. There's a very rapid uh, growth in China's offensive capability. China is, for example, building up a missile capability that would pose a profound threat to US aircraft carrier groups in the event of a conflict. Uh, you're all familiar, and I hardly need to repeat it, with China's uh, construction of military facilities uh, uh, in the South China Sea. But there's a whole bunch of less visible stuff going on as China uh, invests in what in effect is a new generation of military capability. The drone swarm is going to be an important part of any future conflict. And China has a, a natural edge given its capacity for building drones. So number one, there's no question that China's spending a lot on its military. And to call it defense is to stretch 
the meaning of that term. Secondly, one characteristic feature of America First as a policy is that President Trump has not exactly been reassuring to uh, traditional US allies and the alliance system. It was a great source of concern uh, for both General McMaster, his former national security advisor, and General Mattis, his former defense secretary. They've gone. Uh, and I think one has to worry a little bit about how uh, firm the resolve of the United States would be towards any of its allies uh, in the face uh, of a conflict. So when you put those two things together, Australia can hardly be complacent about its security. Look, let's just do some basic history here. History is mostly the history of empires. It's not actually the history of nation states. And it's mostly the history of conflict, not the history of peace. You get peaceful periods, no question. We've been in a relatively peaceful time uh, since the end of the Cold War. But to assume that this will continue indefinitely would be to ignore the lessons of history. Another obvious lesson of history, which has been true throughout the centuries, is that if you want peace, prepare for war. And vice versa. If you want war, act like it'll never come. Allow your defense capability to atrophy. For an enormous island that is thinly populated in relative terms, compared with Asia, that has a vast store of natural resources, for such an island to be ill-defended seems like the most spectacular historical folly. In particular, when it is in relatively close proximity to a one-party state with obviously imperial ambitions, it's quite a long way away from its principal ally. That China has imperial ambitions is obvious. The more Chinese leaders in their speeches say, oh, China never does conquest, the more I'm like, seriously? Are you really gonna make that argument? I mean, the Qing Empire was taking great chunks of Russia just over a century ago. So let's get real here. This is not a good situation. It was okay during the Chimerican era when the Chinese were like, okay, it's no problem. We'll just sell you stuff cheaply and underpay our workers and lend you money. It's cool. We'll buy Australian stuff, not a problem. Market price, how much do you want? That was all fine. But anybody who thought that that was going to last indefinitely was dreaming because the whole point of Chimerica was that it was a temporary, illusory relationship and that at some point China wouldn't need it anymore. And the Chinese are kind of getting to the point where they don't need it anymore. And the bets that we placed from the Clinton era that they would liberalize or that the internet would somehow turn them into a democracy, all that's gone. China's actually gone in the opposite direction politically. Xi Jinping has increased the central control of the party, is reimposing doctrinal orthodoxy, is cutting out such free speech as had developed uh, in China's public square. I mean, how many more flashing red lights do you need? So I think this is kind of getting to the point of urgent. And what I see 
in Australian politics is a debate that if it was going on in a regional council in Scotland would seem parochial. The parochialism is stunning. True, a considerable effort's been made by the intelligence and national security community in this country to waken people up to the potential threat that Australia faces. But is, is Australia in any way prepared from a naval point of view for a Chinese act of aggression? No way. So I think this is a moment of truth, actually. I said yesterday that we were entering a new Cold War and we should stop pretending otherwise. That's right. And this Cold War will be very different from the last Cold War. It will be fought in different ways. It will be a, an arms race for everything from artificial intelligence to quantum computing more than for nuclear weapons or rockets to the moon. And the battlefields will be different. When you consider what China's Belt and Road Initiative has become, it is nothing less than Weltpolitik, than a global policy. It's far extended beyond the original concept that was essentially a Central Asian Indian Ocean concept, and it's become global. And the search for commodities is not a trivial part of what is involved. Empires some level are about acquiring commodities at below market prices. That's kind of what empires are. Or at least not trusting to the market to deliver you the commodities so it's better to own the real estate and own the mines, control the supply chain and not be at the mercy of the market or the mercy of a navy, which China currently is, the US Navy. So we need to clearly understand the historical logic of China's expansion. To have security, China cannot be dependent on imported commodities and market prices. When you think about what that implies for Australia, it's really quite scary. Because Australia is a prize. Australia is a hugely attractive place from a Chinese vantage point and not just as a vacation destination or a place to study and learn English. And I'm stunned by the lack of awareness of the strategic vulnerability of Australia. When everything should be screaming to you, prepare. Helen Pluckrose came to prominence for her part in the so-called grievance studies affair, where she and two colleagues sought to expose corruption in the academic field dubbed grievance studies by submitting bogus papers to academic journals. Remarkably, some of them were actually published. One of your papers touted insights, uh, and I'm quoting from the, the newspaper here, into male rape culture based on the inspection of 10,000 dog genitals. I mean, really? What, was the, what did it claim to show and who published it? That was um, Gender, Place and Culture. That's a, um, a feminist geography journal. So we're not worried about geography. It's not one of the high up geography journals. But when you get a kind of identity study attached to any other discipline, like feminist geography, feminist social work, then that is when you see some real sort of madness appear. 
So yeah, our um, dog park paper, as we call it, it, um, it argued that by, examined, by looking at dogs in a dog park and um, incidents of unwanted humping among them and how humans reacted to that, we could confidently state that um, both dog parks and nightclubs were rape condoning spaces and that we should train men like dogs. And we submitted a first draft of, of this and it was received positively. One of the reviewers suggested it could be benefited by the addition of black feminist criminology. So we, we did that. And it, it really is an absolutely absurd paper, but there's also a very dark element there because the reason it went down well was because we were claiming a kind of implicit bias. If you, you've seen um, the reference to implicit biases, we can't see um, racism and sexism so easily anymore because it's been criminalized and it's also frowned upon, but it's still believed to be there. So a lot of scholarship looks into ways to dig it out and make it visible. So by making these claims about how people responded to their dogs, we were feeding into that. And by making uh, men uh, the villains of the piece, we were also flattering the political biases. Melanie Phillips on Brexit. over the Brexit fight is a war to the death over these two views of the world. One view of the world is, as you suggest, um, uh, half the population, a little bit more than half, who voted for Brexit, what they were voting for, was to have a, a, a situation in which they could democratically rule themselves as a nation, bound together by a common culture which found its expression in laws they passed through their national parliament, which could not be overturned or was, would not be subject to any foreign interference. That's what a nation is, independent, sovereign. And it comes to, the, it all boils down to the fact that they appreciate, love, want to cherish, want to continue and protect and defend this idea of a shared national experience, which everybody's bound together. That doesn't mean you can't be different within that, but it means that there is a common shared project called a nation. That's what people wanted. And that is absolute anathema to the progressive ideals uh, of uh, universalism, in which the very idea of a particular culture based on particular moral precepts is anathema because it is particular and therefore excludes, according to this dogma, everybody else. So you can't have a situation which not everybody in the world can immediately share it. And consequently, you must destroy it. And as a result, the nation is illegitimate. And as a result, anybody who voted for that in Brexit is themselves illegitimate. Mm. They themselves must be racist, xenophobic, and so on. And so the nowheres think that the people who voted for Brexit are basically troglodytes and therefore can be completely ignored. Their view counts for nothing. They say so because it's oh, I've, racist. Oh, I've heard it. I've heard people say that. Right. So and what, you see it in America. So too. what they're writing off is the essence of democracy. Yes, that's right. That's it's what they're writing off. Many of my fellow citizens' views are so illegitimate yeah. that they shouldn't. Be but, allowed to have their say. But you can see from their point of view why mm. they have to stop this. Because, first of all, they purported to stand for everything good in the world. And that anybody who stood against that view of the world was um, 
just not really entitled to be part of society at all. They could be written off. Deplorable. Now you can deplorable, de de deplorable. Mm. but you can do that with a few people. You can do it with a few hundred people. You can do it with a few thousand people, but 52% uh, of the population, what, they're all racist, they're all xenophobic, so this can't, this can't be. Author and journalist Douglas Murray is tireless in his determination to expose the hypocrisy and irrationality of so much of today's political debate, especially when it comes to the dictates of political correctness and identity politics. Yeah, this is, um, this is, there's a pattern in all of this. Uh, as I say in that chapter, you can, you can see the intellectual underpinnings. And they come from this idea that if, it's a, it's a Marxist idea, but it's just transferred to the modern era, where instead of talking about society and class structures, you talk about it in minority interest group structures. And you lump people like this. What, what, is, what is the primary aim of this? Um, among other things, it is a different interpretation of society, which is therefore intended to segregate and pull apart societies as you and I might understand them. So that people's primary affiliation is not that I'm an Australian, yeah. but or I'm British, but I'm a member of the LGBT community in the greater Sydney area, for instance. Um, you can predict with 100% accuracy the people who encourage this, the people who will grab the latest claim by an interest group and run with it. And it is always people, always people, who in the past had another way of trying to attack our societies, had a radical Marxist view of the world, for instance. We know this with the green issue where, and again, like, like the rights issues I write about in this book, they succeed because they're not onto nothing, you know. Um, the green uh, uh, movement is onto something with the environment and with our planet, but it has this hideous red interior which keeps exposing itself yeah. as desiring not, not a better relationship between ourselves and our environment, but for instance, the end of capitalism. Yeah. And it's the same with this. Uh, I expose in each of the chapters that the people who make it repeatedly and desperately plain that they believe, for instance, that being a woman is should be merely the first step in a wider mission to bring down capitalism. Now, I don't think most women are on board with that, and most women would be rather surprised to be utilized mm. in this fashion. Mm. But that is very clearly and explicitly, and I quote the, the various scholars and writers who've been pushing this for, for, for years, this is explicitly the aim. And it's why, as I say, you can always predict exactly who is going to latch onto the latest claim. When, when for instance, the big bearded man yes. with male genitalia wins the women's weightlifting competition, you can predict with 100% accuracy who is going to say, yeah, what's the problem with that? and the people who are going to say, hmm, I'm not sure Clive the big weightlifter should be winning the women's category. You can predict it. And the people who say, why have you got a problem with that bigot, are always the same people who believed in the past that our societies needed to be pulled apart in another fashion. And now they'd like to do it in this fashion. Claire Lehman is the founding editor of Australia's groundbreaking Quillette magazine 
To quote their mission statement, Quillette is a platform for free thought. We respect ideas, even dangerous ones. We also believe that free expression and the free exchange of ideas help human societies flourish and progress. Quillette aims to provide a platform for this exchange. I mean, the, the left-right divide can be useful, but it's often too simplistic for what we're talking about today. And I often find the, the axis of authority versus liberty sometimes more useful. And I think what we're seeing today with the left is if you think of, if I think about my own parents and back when they were young in the 1960s and 70s, there was a lot of focus on liberty if yeah. among for the left, you know, mm. liberty from um, social conservatism and so on and so forth. And, and free speech was a huge part of what it meant to be a leftist. Yeah. Today, and family values, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Traditional family values. They were fierce defenders. Sure. Of mum, dad and the kids. Yeah. Well, the, you know, um, the, that's part of defending the working workers is to defend working families. But I think the shift, what we've seen is a shift towards more authoritarian leftism rather than li uh, liberal leftism. And so I find that... Uh, liberal leftists are really easy to get along with and to talk to and debate with and they're happy to have debates over any of these topics or or any topic at all but it's the authoritarians who are not open to debate and unfortunately the kind of progressivism that we're seeing in younger people today and that is being taught within universities is of the more authoritarian strain and and that is um unnerving and I, one thing that concerns me is how it gets reinforced by social media. Um, so social media is this great engine for confirmation bias. Yeah, right. So it's really easy to find people who agree with you 100% on every single issue. Um, so it's, I think it's really easy for young people to get into these little echo chambers where they're reinforcing each other and then once they come up, um, across someone who they disagree with in the re real world, they're not equipped to be able to handle that disagreement. So they go straight for the ad hominem, straight for the emotion, appeal to emotion. And um, it's really not a constructive situation. Thank you to our audience for your support. If you haven't already done so, please like, comment, share with others and subscribe. Doing so means we can reach more people with this vital content. Along with the rest of society, we are adapting to the lockdown situation we find ourselves in. Under these conditions, John is less able to meet with his guests face to face. So we have launched a new series of interviews, John Anderson Direct, so John can continue sharing the views of important commentators, even more important at a time like this. Please enjoy. Yes, of course. And I should stress here that I make no claims to expertise in this matter. Uh, what I have done is I've started from the basic principle of almost all journalistic inquiry and indeed almost all inquiry in, in the modern world, which is the, the great statement by Otto von Bismarck, never believe anything until it's been officially denied. Start from a position that you don't know uh, and that the authorities don't necessarily know either and ask questions. And what I have found 
is that a number of prominent and highly qualified people, and I will name them in most cases here, uh, have serious doubts about what we're doing. Uh, the first of them is Professor John Ioannidis of Stanford University in California, who believes that the supposed mortality rates from COVID-19, which have been suggested, are completely and utterly misunderstood uh, by those who are putting them forward and are based on statistical nonsense. His work is well worth consulting from us. Secondly, and this is by no means the only person in this position, a very prominent and distinguished professor of medical microbiology in the University of Mainz, uh, one of the main seats of learning in Germany, Professor Sutrid Bhakti, uh, has made two major interventions in the politics of his country, saying that the shutdown of the economy is, is wrong and disastrous. Particularly, he argues that it's disastrous for the very large number of healthy old people in our societies who rely very much both on, on social contact and on exercise to sustain their health, and who, if this is prolonged, will, will be severely and permanently damaged. And he foresees uh, quite a, a large number of deaths resulting from this. And so if we're trying to put this as, a, as some people try to suggest as a, a crude question of life versus money, it isn't. Uh, the, the loss of life from this policy is potentially considerable. And you see also in the experts from Sweden who are continuing to insist that their government behaves like a normal government and takes a moderate and proportionate action rather than precipitate and extreme action, uh, that they also doubt very considerably the extraordinary social, economic and political experiment being engaged on by so many major Western countries.